Hi, I am Paul Armitage, a partner at Gowling WOG. Technology and data are key parts of our world today. At Gowling WOG, our team of legal professionals can help you take a proactive approach to meeting your legal obligations in the field of cybersecurity and managing a cyber breach if it does happen. Visit our website today to learn how we can help. Thanks a lot for joining us on BIV Today, the podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. Our subject is a problem that's been complicated by the pandemic, how to keep our information secure and safe from invasion in this emerging era of working from home. What can individuals and businesses do to mitigate risk? That's what we're going to be focusing on in the second part of our podcast today. Derek Menke is Chief of Security Insights and Global Threat Alliances at Fortinet's FortiGuard Labs. David Masson is Director of Enterprise for Darktrace. It's an AI company that specializes in cyber defense. And Paul Armitage is a partner in the Gowling Law Firm, where he's its head of Vancouver Industry Technology Group. Today, we're going to talk really about, uh, about how it is we can protect ourselves, businesses and consumers. We're going to focus on this in our time together. And Paul, let's, let's start with uh, what are the best protections for business at the moment? Well, uh, it's important to be be prepared to have an incident response plan. So there's obviously the the technical protections that need to be put in place around the firewalls, updating antivirus software, computer updates and things of that sort. And then from the sort of the corporate perspective, you know, one of the key elements to have is a natural incident response plan. So if a breach does occur, your organization is in a position to respond to it. And so, of course, one of the interesting things about the COVID epidemic with everyone working to moving to working remotely, you know, their previous incident response plan may need to be revisited because it may have been premised, for example, on everyone being at the office. And the first step of the plan could be to get the head of IT, you know, the chief legal officer of the KCB and the boardroom together to discuss what the problem is. Of course, that's not possible anymore. So organizations need to have an incident response plan that will put them in a position to be able to respond, and that's um, and one that will actually work in this environment. Um, so that's like a sort of a crucial element, so that when a, a breach does occur, and of course, despite no matter what steps people may have taken to secure their organization, breaches can still occur. That they're in a position to be able to respond to it, and you know, identify the breach, address the breach, and then take steps to mitigate the harm and, uh, you know, uh, remedial steps to, um, per, you know, make it hard for the same type of breach to reoccur in the future. Yeah. David, all that sounds quite expensive. Uh, potentially it can be expensive. Uh, as we've all said uh, uh, before, it's all about training your staff and, and then the technology you use. Uh, the risk you run in cyber is made up of two facets, really. It's the threat you face and your vulnerability to that threat. For most of us, there's not a damn thing we can do about the threat. There's there's fat chance of us hiring a bunch of ex-special forces and parachuting them into country X to go and do something about it. It's not going to happen. So what we have to do is we have to focus on our vulnerability to that threat. And that's really the starting point for everybody in this uh, in in business. And something we do need to bear in mind, right now the, the um, advantage always seems to lie with the attacker on the offensive side. But if you think about it, it shouldn't be really. Because if we have visibility, and it was something that uh, Derek brought up earlier, we should really know what we've got and know absolutely everything about it. Whereas when an attacker lands on their, on your network, they're naive, they've never been there before, they're lost lambs in a world they've never seen before. And we should, if we know our, know our landscape, we should see them when they arrive. 
but curiously, most organizations simply don't have that visibility. And that's why you hear about things like the Equifax hack, where yeah. a huge amount of data walked off the network and nobody saw it. So, so is the problem there, David, that some companies don't even know what they have? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the number of times we've gone into a company and asked them how many devices they've had, and we've ended up finding 25 to 30% more IP-connected devices than they thought they had, mm. including occasionally the business next door. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you're next door to an interesting bunch of businesses there. Um, Derek, pick up on that. Yeah, so um, a couple of things. Uh, so just commenting on what Paul is talking about, specifically with the IR planning, it is important, but that's the end of the process. If you think of the attack lifecycle, you really have to have your bases covered from the proactive preventative measures. So to David's point, uh, knowing the enemy, knowing your vulnerabilities, doing everything you can in advance. Um, nothing is 100%, there's never a silver bullet uh, in, in our industry. So. But being proactive and trying to mitigate that risk as much as possible goes a long way. Um, to the expensive comments, uh, yes, it can get pricey, but if you look at the risk, it's not, nowhere near the cost of damages that can occur. I mean, like, um, you know, if you look at the Ponemon Institute as an example, average cost of a data breach is pegged, and this is in US dollars, but at 3.92 million, I think, last year. We've seen targeted ransom cases, damages happening in the tens of millions of dollars, organizations taking out cyber insurance policies in, in that tune. So the cost up front is definitely worth the investment. Uh, so that, that's part of it. <clears throat> On the incident response part, um, you know, knowing the um, uh, not just not just a, a general incident response, but having playbooks developed for specific things. They, they, it's more granularity that's also important, i.e. what to do in a ransom attack versus a DOS attack, those sorts of things. And, and finally, my last comment would be, um, you know, I think really when it comes to uh, being able to protect against the threat, it's really important. Not everyone has the resources or skill sets to have their own threat experts on site. So being able to work with vendors, MSSPs, managed security uh, service providers, and being able to, you know, we have a lot of technology today. Um, things that are mundane tasks that humans shouldn't have to do, automation, uh, orchestration, machine learning, AI solutions, those are all viable things to look at. And, I mean, I, I've, I've tried to keep up with the daily uh, doling out of funds uh, from senior levels of government around a, a variety of things in order to make us safer in all of this. Um, I haven't noticed any government plan to help us keep our data secure in all of this is, is does one have to come here, Derek? To uh, uh, a high level plan. Um, I think, you know, when it, that, that comes back to the, the education uh, there are frameworks, of course, if you look at things like NIST as an example that have been developed, I think it definitely helps to have reference points, especially in different verticals. Um, Having the channels, you know, areas that, that um, uh, you know, organizations can reach out to in the case, specific, specifically going back to a classic threat like ransom, ransomware, you know, uh, what to do if you get hit with, with an attack, who to report that to. That's all definitely very important because I think a lot of times people just don't know that organizations don't know. Yeah. David, uh, if, is government the place to get the help in all of this or does government have all the same problems that businesses have? Uh, well, Canadian government's got a pretty good idea of the um, scale of threat that it faces to the Canadian government. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's well known, speaking as a former member of it. 
it's outside of government where things are a bit sketchier. It's it's difficult to in Canada to actually say what is the scale of the threat in Canada. Uh, Derek's company will have an opinion, another company will have an opinion, we have an opinion, but it's difficult to find out why because we haven't really got a proper central collection process to actually discover what's happening with all the attacks. Now I know we've had changes to the law that we had the. Uh, uh, Digital Privacy Act a couple of years ago, which said that, you know, if you get hacked, you've got to report it to the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. And that kind of kicked off quite well. But I saw some statistics really that recently it shows that about half of those who get hacked actually report the hack at the end of the day. And so we don't really know what the scale of the threat is. And the th- mm-hmm. problem with that is if you don't know what the scale of the threat actually is, you don't know where to deploy your resources and your budget and your people to do something about it. And you end up with sketchy post-attack remediations rather than a general as i said before you can't do much about the threat but a more general let's concentrate on our vulnerabilities Hmm. paul i think some people would find a bit curious that you you're not necessarily compelled to report the attack what's what's the legal requirement for businesses in these cases yeah so as as david mentioned the the federal privacy law was amended uh, two years ago to create it actually is mandatory breach reporting and it's a sort of two-step reporting you report to, or two different reports, you report both to the privacy commissioner and to the individuals if, you know, if that, if that notice to the individuals would help them mitigate the potential harm to them. So I say it's mandatory, but there is nonetheless a test that's involved. And so the test really is, um, is there, a, you know, has there been a breach of security safeguard that would lead to what's considered a, um, a reasonable um, prospect of harm. Mm. So, so there could be some analysis there. So, for example, you could have a breach, but perhaps the data was fully encrypted and you know would not be could actually be used in the hands of whoever got their hands on it, or it could or it could have been accessed by a trusted source that they nonetheless weren't supposed to get it, but you're able to get the data back, right? So there, you know, it, it is possible to um, suffer you know uh, a security breach but not trip that legal standard that would trigger the reporting obligation. Um, so, so at a federal level, we do now have, but we do have mandatory breach reporting um, as has been described. Um, in British Columbia, you know, interestingly, our privacy law has not yet been amended to include mandatory breach reporting, mm. but across really all the jurisdictions in Canada, the privacy commissioners have guidelines around breach reporting that read very much like mandatory guidelines. They're, Legally speaking, they're not actually mandatory, but they nonetheless will create the obligation and the expect or the expectation that organizations will treat this serious and report it. And as we mentioned, one of the biggest you know threats or dangers to any sort of security interest is really a reputational one. And so, organizations that don't take these things seriously obviously um, risk a bigger rep- rep- uh, reputational hit than those that do follow the best practices and do follow the guidelines around reporting. Derek, as a a journalist that's always kind of fighting for transparency on this and transparency on that, um, are these provisions kind of soft still? Kind of, sorry? Soft. Oh, yeah, I I think we always need to do better as a whole in the industry, but we're heading in the right direction. Um, I am a believer in, in transparency. Uh, you know, I do a lot of work with uh, public-private sector relationships. So to David's point, that's something the industry is getting better at. You know, when it comes to the government, they know the government well in their space, but in the from a private sector's viewpoint, they don't always have those connections. So we've done things in the industry. I'm on the steering committee of the Cyber Threat Alliance. We're a founding member, as an example. Uh, we have public-private sector relationships where we can share 
real-time data on, on threats that we see in intelligence and it's up to the government to, to form their response to that. Um, I think it's, it's traditionally between private and public sector, it's been a one-way street and we can feed info to the public sector. We don't always get feedback coming uh, back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a little soft in, in, uh, to, to use your words, but, but that's getting better. Uh, we're starting to get some of that bi-directional feedback. I think that we need to start enforcing this more, right? When it comes to these, you know, having visibility on, on these breaches, the, you know, the, the, the more people, um, it, it's not a matter of if, but when, unfortunately, a lot of times there's a lot of volume out there, a lot of threat, um, a, a lot of knocking on the doors of organizations from attackers. So, so I think it needs to become a normal practice to be transparent and, and, um, and make, make these more, more commonplace when it comes to reporting. We'll just do a better job in the industry. The whole idea is to, is, you know, cyber criminals have a business model of their own. We have to disrupt that model. We have to make it more expensive for them to operate. And if we show that, that um, we can work collectively together, public and private sector and transparently, it's going to have a bigger impact, um, a costly impact on them. Yeah, but, but David, are we still in this era where businesses consider a breach to be uh, an admission of weakness? Uh, well, some businesses probably just see it as a cost of business. You know, uh, this is going to happen. We just have to accept it, and that's why there's mm-hmm. been a big growth in cyber insurance. Although, what I've never understood is how many hits you can have on your cyber insurance before your premiums become absolutely astronomical. Um, it, it's good. it's going to be a combination, as, uh, as Derek was just saying, of everybody, uh, uh, government, uh, business, uh, right across, what provincial, municipal, and all the rest of it, actually sort of working together better and really getting a full grasp of what this actually is. Uh, I, I don't think people have really grasped yet that cyber or just the IT world that we live in is now a fact of life. I mean, we're living it right now as we communicate through this. This is just the way it's going to be from now on and has been for quite a long time. And in the way that we all understand certain principles about you just don't walk straight out into the road without having a good look around before you cross, we're going to have to become as part of fact of life just understanding cyber and the threat that can come from using these technologies as a general fact of life for everyone. Yeah. Paul, is, is that going to lead, do you think, to further legal changes, further, further legislative changes as we go on now that we are, we are in this era? Um, yeah, I think, you know, obviously the, you know, the privacy laws are, are currently under, under review and they're expecting to be, um, in a sense, taken up a notch uh, in, in the not too near future. And the other aspect to it is you know, most of the privacy laws in Canada are based on really an, orbit, you know, an orbitsman person model. So there's a person who investigates, has the power to make recommendations, but there's no real consequences um, if you don't follow those laws. Actually, an exception to that is the privacy breach reporting. When that amendment was made, there are now fines that are that can be levied if companies do not report breaches. So that's something to bear in mind. Um, but for the most part, it's an ombuds uh, person model, and so they're mm-hmm. looking to really, um, you know, introduce higher protections into the laws and then attach actual consequences in the form of penalties for breaching them. So that's certainly something that's um, that's 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 coming down, uh, coming coming our way in the. I won't say rapidly because these things tend to move quite slowly, but you know, in the in the in the near in the near future, um, you know, other you know, there's no real sort of national sort of cybersecurity law, if you, if you can put it that way, right? There's really, um, but there are you know, there is obviously liability concerns for companies in the form of being sued and class actions and 
and things of that sort. Um, you know, the, I think the federal government is has been looking at a, sort of a, a national sort of cyber cybersecurity guidelines or program, whatever the case may be. But um, you know, those I, I, I wouldn't expect those to ultimately take the form of of law per se. So. Yeah, as as a former ombud, I can tell you that largely the power was moral suasion. Moral suasion yes. isn't going to get you terribly far in this uh, in this climate, I would imagine. Uh, are are you know? I would get all three of you to talk about this. Are we requiring something though broader than national law, but something in the way of a, a much more serious international covenant here? Derek, why don't you start there? Yeah. Uh, good news is. We're already working on this, so I'm I'm uh, on a task force with the World Economic Forum. It's called the C4C Center for Cybersecurity Partnership on Cybercrime. It's bringing public, private sector, law enforcement, and prosecution together. It's brand new. Um, I'm not sure if that is the international covenant, but I it it's been. We always say cybercrime has no borders. Um, so it, from a legal perspective, when it comes to disrupting that model, actually prosecuting. Um, it's it's hard to do attribution. It's hard to get access to data transparently. Um, there's a whole bunch of mechanisms there, but it definitely, of course, you know, extends beyond just the scope of Canada. Yeah. David? Um, we've already got some of these uh, worldwide provisions already, uh, one of them being the European Union's GDPR. Back in 2018, when I was doing all my thought leadership stuff and going to conferences and talking to clients, I was trying to get people to realize about the Digital Privacy Act changes to PIPEDA. But in Canada, everybody was terrified of GDPR. We're more worried about somebody else's legislation uh, than our own. And quite rightly so, because in GDPR, uh, if you find a breach, you've got 72 hours in which to report it to a European Union data commissioner, or you'll get fined up to potentially 4% of your annual turnover. Wow. Um, I'm not aware of any fines coming from the DPA in Canada at this point. And in our law, it says you have to report the breach as soon as feasible, with the only word missing there being the word please. Paul? <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, the, you know, as I said, the current Privacy Commission in Canada is on a bit of a, uh, a beat or a path drumming, the, you know, beating the drums to essentially convert what is this ombudsman type model into more of a commissioner sort of European style um, data protection 30 model. Um, that would actually be quite a big shift in terms of how things have traditionally been handled in Canada. But, um, you know, that is something that we could see, like I say, profit. Perhaps not rapidly, but it is something that we could see, uh, you know, in the next couple of years if that approach receives traction, you know, with the government. Yeah, you have to think that as businesses restructure themselves with much more uh, work remotely, that there is even just an economic opportunity there to shift some of the spending that's in these office towers that we now have into kind of a, a protection of the company remotely in that way. Um, I want to uh, conclude our conversation though with uh, with some consumer advice because a lot of people who will be watching us um, aren't necessarily uh, the decision makers in their businesses, but they, they're they concerned about what, you know, the, the amount of work that's being done from home, school work, family work, family stuff that's being done. A lot of it being done, of course, uh, across things like Zoom and Skype and Microsoft Teams and so on, but a lot of it also, just basically uh, across networks that are not all that uh, not all that secure, um, with terms of internet providers, um, help help me understand. You know, a couple of really smart consumer tips here before we uh, before we let go. And Derek, I'll start with you. 
Sure. Um, so um, always be on guard. We talked about the training and education. Um, it comes down to this sense of security. It's not just the targeted attacks, right? We talk about the, the COVID lures as an example. That's definitely a problem. But but also, you know, as, as these devices now are sitting on home networks, um, definitely think about things like segmenting those devices. Obviously, the, through the basics we talk about when it comes to uh, rogue Wi-Fi access points, doing any transactions only in secure environments, knowing that you're having that sense of security, thinking about that sense of security. We're coming up on the uh, e-commerce season now, and we actually quite frankly have been for the last month or so with everyone working from home. We're seeing a huge drive up in volume to e-commerce sites. Those are all gonna be targets to compromise uh, you know, endpoints. If you're in the physical world, walking into a shop and, and holding your wallet open with cash in hand, most people would think twice about doing that. But when they're on these e-commerce sites, they're not thinking like that. So we need to change that mentality. Think about it. Uh, also, just basic things, uh, multi-factor authentication we talk about, um, one-time passwords, passwords are dead, of course, uh, VPN usage, um, and also I'm trying to segment, again, your uh, your device from being on the same network as those other devices that are prone, like I said, those IoT devices, those are the top attacks that we see today. Yeah, I don't want to sound like the, the cranky guy that's always complaining about cost and all of this, but you, you do have to do some personal investment in all of this, don't you? Yeah, and time, right? We we'll talk about cost and time. Yeah. Frankly, I think it's a good opportunity. You're talking about budget allocation. Look at all the travel budgets that have gone down organizations too. And, and people now sitting at home, they have the time to actually educate, I think, more on this. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it yeah. is a investment. There's no longer any $2,000 cups of coffee uh, to go across the, the country. David, why don't you pick up? A uh, couple of simple things, uh, following up from what Derek said. Um, if you don't know what the password is for your router, go and find out what it is and change it right now and change it to something complicated, all right? Something nice and complicated. In fact, all your IoT devices in the house, go and find out what the password is. And if you don't know, find out what it is. And you ready? Change it right now because it's probably a default password that is well known on the dark web and you get it hacked. Simple as that. If you are definitely working at home for a long time uh, and looks like that's the case for all of us, it's one you will get two routers, one for the family and all the rest of it, and one for your business and keep them oh, separate. I'm okay. going to say, I'm going to say, I'm sure all our families uh, have practiced safe cybersecurity on the uh, internet. In fact, we were just discussing about an incident with one of my members of my family just before we came on. Um, but they'll make mistakes because they're not living in the world you live in. Why don't you just remove that risk by going getting yourself your own separate router? And last but no means least, don't click on that link. Yeah, don't click on that link is for sure. Paul? Um, yeah, I think I just, just to sort of build on what, you know, Derek and David is talking about, I think it's about, you know, sort of pick up on, you know, a comment that, you know, David made earlier. It's really about working cyber into your, cybersecurity into your mindset as, a, as an individual. Um, because a lot of people, particularly people who sort of grew up in the internet age, they, they don't necessarily think about, you know, their online activity or things like that as being something that brings risk or danger with it because it's just the way they, the way they're used to doing things. So now I think in, people have to sort of shift their, their mindset a bit, mindset a bit to actually sort of build in, you know, awareness of the potential threats that are out there. You know, be aware of, you know, passwords, changing passwords, not clicking on links, things of that sort. Just, um, just sort of, you know, shift from being a sort of a trusting sort of mindset to how people operate online to more of a sort of a cyber secure mindset. Mm. And, and to, to the router comment, too, uh, for the consumer-grade routers are 
the, the, I talked about those top attacks. They're the number one attacks we're seeing too. So the vulnerabilities, if there's, again, we talk about this for decades, but patches, updates, if they're available, do it. Yeah. Mm. Well, okay. Uh, we're going to break off there so I can go and uh, reset some passwords. Uh, yeah. But um, Derek, David, Paul, it's been a great conversation. Thanks a lot for your help today. That was a great conversation. You've been watching BIB Today. I'm Kurt LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. We'll see you again.